0: Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Mike Viola back to the show. He's a familiar voice, but Mike, uh, as always, for the sake of those who are getting acquainted with you for the first time, take a moment to tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do.
1: Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Brian. Um, I'm Mike Viola. I am the Director of Analytics at the Foundation for Economic Education um, where we advocate for the, the ideas that make a free society um, with young people in both the classroom and online.
0: Okay, I'm looking at a great article that you wrote for National Review about uh, about ESG. And I had to stop and think a second. Okay, ESG, uh, remind me, that stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Um, can you give us just a brief thumbnail sketch? Where does this concept come from? I know we've heard about it, but but where did it originate?
1: it originated um, in in the 90s is really when it became bigger as kind of a niche product um, and then maybe in the last 10 years it's become even more of a presence in the in American investing markets basically it's the idea that um, those those three letters you just mentioned um, environmental social and governance um, are risk factors that should be assessed in addition to regular, um, you know, cash flow, that sort of thing, when making investments um, and that it's a, a useful way to uh, account for risk in a portfolio. Now, naturally, those are um, areas that are very prone to politicization um, and a lot of marketing around these funds have turned into, oh, well, you're saving the world by investing, etc. I think it's kind of gotten out of control. Um, so that's kind of why it's now a, a controversial topic Um, And I I think it's hit a a number of of roadblocks in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, I don't want to sound dismissive, but it's uh, it's it does kind of have a woke feel to it from an environmental standpoint. You know, this is what the truly virtuous companies are doing. And if you're not doing this well, you know, you must not be so virtuous. But it's been kind of a tough year this last year. Talk to me a little bit about some of the pushback that has been taking place against ESG.
1: Yeah, well, over the last year and change, um, a, a number of red states have pushed back on ESG. Um, it started with the environmental side where they saw um, a lot of, uh, rather, the, the, these red states blamed a lot of asset management firms, um, sort of like BlackRock, Vanguard, the firms that run your, your funds in your retirement account. Um, it, it saw them as... Uh, jeopardizing their fossil fuel industries, right? Coal in West Virginia, oil in Texas. Um, and so they began to remove ESG funds, uh, from their state pension plans. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, um, to the extent that, uh, you know, it, it leaves that choice open to private investors, um, with stuff outside of, of state funds. Um, But there were cases where they maybe overreached or they maybe exaggerated the extent that these companies were, you know, in their terms, supposedly boycotting fossil fuels. Um, Oftentimes it was an awkward rhetorical line that wasn't actually borne out in their investments. Um, But uh, since then, um, I I think they've stepped in a bit more controversy. And it's really, I would say, the S factor, the social factor world that um, has ended up being the the real linchpin in in the fight against ESG. Um, Oftentimes we see it as basically indistinguishable from a progressive social agenda, right? Like diversity quotas on boards, um, marketing to, uh, uh, to say favored groups. I think a lot of people blamed that Dylan Mulvaney, Bud Light controversy a couple months ago on uh, trying to meet ESG diversity scores. So, um that's really where I, I think the controversy has gotten and maybe where it's gotten more salient, right? I think that uh it became a weird mechanism of um endorsing social progressivism that really didn't stick with people in a way that maybe the average person understands the environmental risk a little more.
0: Just out of curiosity, how has this affected investors in the companies that have embraced ESG? I mean, you know, it seems like there's a there's a fiduciary duty, you know, for the, the um Stockholders, the share—maybe it's the shareholders. Anyway, those who handle the, the investments, those—they're supposed to be turning a profit, or at least you know we're getting a return on our investment. But it sounds like some of these uh, these ESG approaches actually—well, it's it's not about the money; it's about you know something else. Uh, can they square that with you know the the duty to you know effectively represent people's in investment in the company?
1: Yeah, that, that's a difficult question. Um, I think in part because uh, each of those letters E, S, and G, the problem is there. There are very limited circumstances where they are in fact real risk factors, right? Like there are there are cases where, say, managing, you know, managing waste obviously could have a, a long term impact if not done correctly, and so you'd want to consider. Um, Environment and governance, right? Like um, ethics issues, et cetera. I mean, I I thought that was regular investing. I don't know why that needs an acronym. Um, I I think it's kind of when it becomes indistinguishable, um, sort of between a progressive social agenda and um, investing for return, that the problem really comes and when it's intermingled with um, state funds. Um, You might have heard in some of the ESG news. Nowadays, people are throwing around the term pecuniary factors or non-pecuniary factors. Um, So recently, a a bill introduced in uh, the House um, by uh, their representatives, um, Andy Barr and Rick Allen. So they have a bill called the Insuring Sound Guidance Act. The idea there is um, they believe that investments should only be guided by pecuniary factors, that is, those related to risk and and return calculations um now theoretically that wouldn't um that wouldn't nix esg but it would restrict it only to areas where it actually has an impact on returns uh similar legislation has been imposed by um certain states um florida being the most notable example which took a little more of a a nuanced take on esg um, than I'd, I'd say other red states, um, you know, despite Rhonda Sanders' bluster, he, he put a lot of thought into making sure that um, in the legislation they're actually targeting ESG when it is political, not when it isn't political and is only, you know, affects your investments positively. So that's kind of where this, this awkward balance is, right? Um, we kind of want to make sure that in cases where state funds are involved, or where people are being defaulted to options in their employer's retirement plan, that it is risk and return that is driving um, their investments and not
0: politics. Talk to me about uh, Blackwater CEO Larry Fink, because I understand his name gets gets drawn into this quite a bit. Uh, what, would, what did he mean when he talked about being ashamed for being part of the political discussion?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> this is this is Black Rock, not Blackwater. This is not the oh, sorry. <laughs> this is not My the bad. security guy, <laughs> but um you know, for Dick Cheney Land. But no, this is this is um Black Rock. that's the biggest asset manager in the United States. Um, just you know, I'm sure they're probably behind some of the funds in in listeners' retirement accounts. Um he has been a big proponent of ESG for for years now, um, particularly on the climate side, he sees climate as a as a big investment risk. Um, but about a month ago, I would say after about a, a solid year of being dragged through the mud over ESG stuff, he said he was ashamed of having been drawn into this political debate. He's no longer going to use the term ESG because he he says both sides have have misused it, and he wants to get it back to limited risk-return calculations. Um, It's hard to disagree with with those statements. I think it just feels a little insincere at this point um, that, you know, now he's sort of embarrassed by the beast he had a big part in creating by, um, you know, a lot of his inflamed um, climate and anti-fossil fuel rhetoric, even though, again, BlackRock continued to invest in in fossil fuels, no problem. Um, But I I think he, uh, unfortunately, um, alienated sort of both sides. He he alienated both people on the right who don't want politics in their investments, and he alienated people on the left who thought he was a true climate crusader and he turned out not to be. So um, I think his backing off of ESG, it's a welcome sign. I'm sure we'll see similar things packaged in in other ways. You know, he threw around the term conscientious capitalism, which, of course, sounds sketchy, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll wait for that to, to play out. But um yeah, I, I, I take his walk back as just a sign that ESG did not play out how they thought it would. People are legitimately skeptical of it. They should be skeptical of it. They shouldn't jump to the conclusion that there are never environmental or governance concerns. But um when it gets political, when you can't rationalize it on a risk return basis, that's when you gotta be worried. And you know, I, I'm, I'm glad we're backing off from ESG. OK,
0: fascinating article. And I, I'm only sorry we didn't have time to talk about, you know, and, and do we worry about what comes next? Maybe we can do that in, in a future interview. Again, we're talking <laughs> with uh, Mike Viola. He's the head of analytics for the at the Foundation for e- Economic Education and also a Young Voices contributor. Uh, Mike, where can people follow you on social media?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, find me on Twitter uh, at mf underscore Viola, um, or Twitter X, whatever it's now called. <laughs> my, I hear, hear, the names changing. Um, you can also find my work at young-voices.com, um, where you know, I'm, I'm listed on, on their contributors page.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Miranda Spint back to the program. Uh, Miranda, this is uh, this is going to be a first time for some people meeting you. So uh, let's take just a moment here and uh, just kind of tell them who you are and what you do.
2: Sure. So my name is Miranda Spint. I'm a contributor with Young Voices. Um, I'm continuing now with the writing program for the rest of the year, which is very exciting. I'm happy to keep doing this. Um, I'm also a... A policy associate at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty doing um, policy research focused mostly on education and healthcare, um, but a lot of topics. Um, and then I'm also um, a student getting my master's in public administration currently.
0: And what do you do in your spare time? I'm sorry, you don't have any spare time, right? (laughs) You've got got a pretty full plate.
2: I mean, I live in the gorgeous Lake Country area in Wisconsin, so lots of kayaking, boating, and stuff like that is probably my favorite thing to do, especially now in the summer that it's nice around here.
0: Nice. now. I'm very grateful that you have a focus on educational policy because you have uh, what, to me, was surprisingly good news about uh, school choice. I've been watching this very closely in my home state of Idaho. Um, this was a very, uh, you would think it would be a slam dunk issue, and it's not. It's, it's very bitterly contested for some reason. But I see that school choice is actually gaining ground in some unlikely places, Wisconsin being one of those places. And I guess it's, it's kind of a, a strange story in the sense that, there's a divided government there, but that didn't stop school choice from right. happening. Tell us about how that came about.
2: Yeah, so we have a divided government here with Republican-controlled legislator, legislature and um, Democratic governor. Um, and our Democratic governor, he used to be the superintendent for the Department of Public Administration here, and he's had a long history of being opposed to school choice. Um, So, what happened is um, we're in our budget session, or we just finished our budget session um, over the spring, and there was a very large bill that needed to happen for, for shared revenue, to increase shared revenue to our local counties, municipalities, and a large portion of that was making sure that we could increase funding for Milwaukee and Milwaukee County, which is facing bankruptcy. So, we wanted to... Um, I guess Republican legislators they kind of capitalized on that a bit and negotiated, saying that um, if you want to get certain things that you want in this bill for shared let for a shared revenue for Milwaukee, such as increasing the sales tax and making sure that there didn't have to be a um, a referendum for voters to imp- a- approve the increase in the sales tax, um, that in order to do that, that they use that negotiating chip to um, encourage an increase in funding, per per pupil funding for um, private schools and independent charter schools um, here in the state. So both of those bills got passed already, signed by Governor Evers, and that was a very big win for us considering um, the barrier that we have in our governor.
0: I have to say I'm impressed just because it, it, in the other states that I've watched where where this has been an issue and and still is an issue, uh, it seems like sometimes the sides are so entrenched. And I mean both sides are dug in deep. Um, was it mm-hmm. pragmatism that carried the day here where each side got a little bit of what they wanted and maybe had to give up a little bit of something?
2: Yes, definitely. So, like I said, Republicans, as far as the shared revenue bill, went they were really adamant on having a referendum so that uh, milwaukee county and city voters could decide if they wanted their sales tax to increase um eventually they gave in and it turned out to just be a two-thirds vote or majority vote of the um, county board um, which passed and already the sales tax has been implemented here in the county and the same thing in the city um, so there was that also um republicans gave up a little bit in the Um, school choice bill, there wasn't as much of an increase in funding as they wanted. And there was also, um, not that it was something the Republicans didn't want, but another thing they gave to Governor Evers in that bill was a $1 billion increase in public schools, in addition to increasing um, the school choice voucher fund for people funding. Um, So there was definitely a give and take and um, people compromising on both sides. So um a little bit of win some lose some for both sides, definitely.
0: Now before we went on the air, you and I were talking about how um you know, you would think in some states where, where there's uh, there's much more of a uh, a red state feel, more of a conservative bent, that it should be easy to pass, but but sometimes there's actually there's an urban and rural divide that gets in the way. Can mm-hmm. you can you kind of walk us through how, how that presents a challenge in those states?
2: Sure. So, my piece is definitely focused on divided governments um and I give I give a few examples in the article of republican controlled um unified governments of uh, where school choice has been it's it's really had a great year overall around the country in my different states, but mostly in unified governments, but even in unified government that is necessarily a silver bullet to having school choice passed. So, both Georgia and Texas had legislation fail this year. Um, and a lot of that is because of the urban-rural divide. So in rural counties, there's typically only one or two public schools in an area. Um, and obviously, if a student were to pick a um, a choice school, the funding would follow that student, which makes sense in a lot of places. Um, but that can feel very threatening for the um, public schools in those smaller areas where it's people are very reliant on those public schools. And that creates pr- quite a divide, Um so, like I said, so um, rep- have being a Republican state isn't a isn't a silver bullet for passing school choice. But yes.
0: Okay, so I have to ask this question carefully because um, I understand compromise is a part of politics um, at, at pretty much every yeah. level. But has anybody approached school choice with an all or nothing approach and actually gotten what they wanted, or is that is that pretty much non existence or non existent
3: rather? Oh um- no.
2: I mean, I don't know if it's non existent, but I as far as I'm aware, it seems like school choice has definitely been a incremental um incremental progress. I mean, Wisconsin has Milwaukee I think was some of the first school choice programs in the country almost thirty years ago and you know, we're still having these battles and Wisconsin, I think, now with this increase in per people funding, we're seventh in the nation for closing the gap between funding for choice schools and and public schools. Um, So there's definitely, I think, probably more of an incremental um, slow progress battle for school choice.
0: So are any are there any other states that you're watching or keeping an eye on that are very close to uh, to, you know, getting school choice or that, that have reached kind of the same state that, that Wisconsin was in? I, I'm just curious, what are the mm-hmm. other states we should watch for to, to see whether they're able to, to strike some kind of a deal?
2: Um, I don't know about other states being able to strike a deal. One state that I am watching is North Carolina. Um, they have a divided government with the Democratic governor. Um, what's interesting in their case is that they have a Republican supermajority that can override a governor's veto, so there is some school choice legislation moving there, and I'm curious to see um, how that how that will play out if if the governor signs it or just vetoes it, and then it gets passed anyway.
0: You know, um, here in my home state of Idaho, it was actually Republicans who switched votes or who said nope i'm not going to get behind you know a school choice bill or i think it was education savings accounts and and i was kind of surprised you know i ex- <laughs> i expected it from the opposition but it turns out that there were republicans who had reservations <laughs> and d- do you see this in other states as well are there republicans who stand in the way of school choice
2: definitely even even here in wisconsin we had a a few Republican legislators who we had to really convince to vote for this school choice legislation. And I mentioned earlier, Texas and Georgia, where that legislation failed despite having a unified government. So, yeah, especially with those with those rural counties and districts where people represent Republicans can also be a barrier.
0: Okay, and and one other question here. We're down to about a minute left. Um, Miranda, Mm-hmm. Where where does it go? Once that once they have a degree of school choice, does that mean that the issue is settled? Or are, are people still pushing? There's more that we want to see. We want to see, you know, a separation of school and state or we want to see, you know, um, more competition. Uh, does it lead somewhere from there? Or is it just, you know, getting to to some degree of school choice? And that's good enough.
2: I think the goal for many people in the school choice movement is universal school choice. The idea that there should be absolutely no limits depending on where you're from, what your school, what um, zip code you live in. You should be able to go to any school that works best for you, whether that's public or private or a charter school. And I think that's the ultimate goal that uh, we should be shooting for as far as school choice goes.
0: Okay. Again, we are talking with with Miranda Spint, and she is with uh, Young Voices as well as a policy associate at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Where can people follow you on social media, Miranda?
2: You can find me on Twitter at Miranda dash
0: Okay, very good. Well, hey, I'm hoping we get a chance to uh, to catch up again here sometime soon and have some more success stories about school choice to discuss.
2: (laughs) Definitely. Thank you so much for having me back on, Brian.
0: And thank you. and we are back this is moving forward with young voices very happy to welcome cassandra shand back to the program she's a phd candidate at the university of cambridge also a young voices innovation fellow and uh, cassandra tell us just a little bit uh, about yourself for the sake of those who are meeting you for the very first time
4: Um, Sure. First of all, thank you, Brian, so much for having me on. Um, As you said, yes, my name is Cassandra Shand. I am a current PhD candidate. I'm very involved in the startup space, have previously worked the think tank space as well, uh, Definitely a little bit of a space junkie. I spend most of my time on strategy stuff. So, uh, and I love foreign policy. So, um, yeah, big nerd. <laughs> but well, it.
0: as as it turns out, you know, I'm looking at an article you wrote for NationalInterest.org. The low Earth orbiting satellite race needs more than a first place victor. And I never used to spend that much time looking up at the sky at night. I do now, and it's because the chances of seeing a satellite coming over are, are very, very good. I I didn't realize that there was a low Earth orbiting satellite race, however. Help me understand uh, what's going on and when did that start?
4: Well, since we kind of, the US and other countries have been involved in the space race back in the Cold War, we've known about low Earth orbiting satellites and we've been involved in kind of seeing those satellites developed. Whether it be, that be by the government or by the commercial sector, essentially low earth orbit or low the low earth orbit, um, that's where like low earth orbiting satellites are situated. They're about twelve hundred miles from the Earth's surface. So in that kind of below that, that's low earth orbit. Um, above that you have like middle earth orbit, geosynchronous orbit, geosynchronous is where you get like GPS. Um, but it's actually kind of crazy. If you kind of think about it, um, low earth orbit is like kind of the first layer of like the main satellite orbits, orbital paths that Satellites will take, but that creates kind of like a, a choke point. So, if you can imagine, kind of becoming increasingly congested, whoever controls that lower lower Earth orbit will kind of control what can leave Earth essentially. Um, and right now, the U.S. is very much ahead, which has created kind of a security dilemma um, and a security crisis for other countries, where U.S. companies are definitely dominating low Earth orbit, and uh, other countries are feeling increasingly insecure about their prospects of gaining a significant stake in low Earth orbit.
0: Now you use an analogy that made a whole lot of sense to me and that's kind of like a parking lot. And, and you know when when you have so many objects up there in space that are are competing for space there comes a point where there there's too many. Who makes the call as to to whether there there is sufficient space to accommodate more satellites or not.
4: Uh that's the thing. So geosynchronous orbit again it's like GPS there is a uh, International Telecommunications Union, the ITU. They control those orbital allocations. And so, if you want to like put another position, navigation, and timing device in geosynchronous orbit, like another GPS satellite, you have to get a specific like orbital slot from the ITU. That kind of um, Governance regime does not exist around the low Earth orbiting space. Um, there's some estimates out there that by 2030, 99% of satellites will in low Earth orbit will have will be uh, placed in low Earth orbit without like any kind of regulating body uh, giving them that spot. If that makes sense. Um, again, like governance is a slippery slope. Like what do you mean by governance? But for the most part, the way it would happen, at least in the U.S., is if you want to issue or put a satellite into space in low Earth orbit, you go through the FCC. Um, and the FCC then kind of, like, gives a vague, okay, we want a satellite spot in this place to the ICU. And there's very little, um, if you look at the international telecommunications documents around, like, say, like a Starlink slot, um, there's there's not a, a very big indication as to kind of how big the constellation they're planning is, Um So depending on the company, it's, it's very, it's very hard to assess. Um, and yeah, back to that analogy you mentioned before the parking slot, the parking spot kind of analogy, uh, I'd say it's more like a parking garage because it's like, it's easy to think of like all of these satellites, just one plane, but in reality, they're kind of stacked in vertical as well. So you have like horizontal placement and you have vertical placement and it becomes really complicated because these satellites don't, they're not in a perfect, perfect, perfectly circular orbit. Um, and so, yeah, it's not an easy issue, but without these kind of, uh, kind of more refined orbital allocations, we can kind of get into a messy situation.
0: So I'm a big fan of of Starlink. In fact, uh, that's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I live in a rural area, and getting Starlink satellite internet was just, wow, this this opens up so many possibilities. Who is competing with Starlink? I know they've put, I think, hundreds, maybe there are thousands of Starlink satellites up there right now. Who, Who are the primary competitors
4: yeah, well, it depends on like what you view as competition. In the U.S. broadband speed, so like high speed internet, you also have like ter- terrestrial telecommunications um, companies that are competing with like your market share. So we saw a few months ago with Biden's new broadband policy that definitely favors your terrestrial like legacy telecommunications providers in space. Um, so like other low Earth orbiting satellite companies, you also have companies like Amazon's Project Hyper. Um, you have uh abroad you have china china has starnet um you have uh, viasat which is kind of an older um it, it has more of a legacy in the, the tele, telecommunication space than starlink does and you also have like kind of the defense utility as well so starlink does provide some um augmentation for the air force and other uh dod affiliates you have like your traditional like lockheed types that are competing in that space as well hughes um so it's a very competitive landscape um but it's a growth it's like i think it's like a 20 percent cagr um there's a reason there's a lot of market entrance and again like who, whoever controls that low earth orbiting space um controls who escapes Earth. <laughs> um, and also, yeah, I, I personally, as someone who's very pro kind of like space-based internet, I really wish the U.S. would favor more space-based telecommunications as opposed to this kind of uh, your legacy telecommunications providers.
0: You know, the stuff that's going on over our heads that we are just completely oblivious to, you've kind of pulled the curtain back and and I have to admit, it kind of blows my mind a little bit. I do never stop to realize just how much activity is taking place there. What kind of cooperation is there between nations? Um, it seems like that could be a friction point. I'm, I'm thinking China in particular. They kind of do their own thing. Um, do do the, the countries play well together? Or is is this a, a place where there, there's growing tension and maybe even potential conflict?
4: This is definitely a point of a potential conflict. Um so this is not about China, but think about Ukraine. Um, I'm a. I firmly believe that Starlink has set the battle space for Ukraine. Depending on who you ask, um, there's been stories I've heard where Ukraine could have advanced further into Russian territory, but Starlink was like, "Nope, we won't give you any service there. Like, we don't want to become um, that political. So if you go further, that's you won't have access. And so in many ways, you can, you can kind of you, Starlink is definitely setting the battle space. Um, and that makes kind of SpaceX an almost uh, supranational governance system or, or an extra arm of the U.S. government, like an unofficial arm. Um, again, there's a lot of strategic ambiguity there. And then, uh, yeah, China definitely feels insecure. Um, I mean, imagine breaking the Great Firewall. It's Great Firewall. Imagine if Chinese citizens had access to the Internet that Americans have access to with Star, with Starlink. Um, that poses a direct threat to its sovereignty. They definitely are trying to catch up. But um, right now, SpaceX and other American companies have created a significant, um, <laughs> uh, they have a lot of catch up to do with put it that way.
0: So, are there, are there solutions on the horizon as far as, yeah, can, can the bandwidth, can the available space um, or capacity, can it be expanded? Or is there a, a hard limit that people are just going to have to learn to work within?
4: It is finite. If you have too many space objects in low Earth orbit um i mean like think about space debris it becomes it creates a huge space debris issue um i mean like a, a small little screw can wreck how many different satellites um then there becomes like a whole like geopolitical concern over who's responsible for space debris that's just a debris issue now imagine if that entire um orbital orbital span orbital span Band is um, completely occupied. There's a lot of kind of moving parts. Okay, who moves when? To do X, Y, and Z, so we can get something out to middle Earth orbit or beyond that. Um, It becomes increasingly difficult. And also, I'm not sure if you've, (laughs) like, you and the rest of the country have seen Oppenheimer. I think it's a good example of like that, like. There's there's definitely a strategic desire to maintain control. And right now it's like as many as you shoot up there, um, and, and kind of secure your stake on a slot. It's it's kind of like I I at first when I was looking at this article, I was like, well, maybe I'll do like a gold miners analogy where it's like it's truly really like whoever like stakes their claim first. And um yeah, it's uh that's why I think there's a deep interest in making sure it was not a race to the bottom. Um that being said, it's in every country's strategic interest to assert a claim first and a very big claim.
0: This sounds like something we all need to kind of keep one eye on just, just to, to be aware of what's happening. And I mean, I I don't want to sound morbid, but it sounds like that could actually be a battlefield at some point. If, you know, someone decides we need this space and, you know, we need to just take it by domination.
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, like China tested a I satellite weaponry in 2000, I think seven. Um, also, I mean, like as far as internet connectivity, um, low Earth orbiting satellites are definitely used to kind of augment PNT, so uh, kind of reduce reliance on GPS. We rely on space-based assets for internet for connectivity, which means like connectivity uh, to military assets as well on the ground. Meaning, if you dock, if you, you do spoofing, jamming, anti-satellite, the connect connect kill type stuff with like anti-satellite weaponry. Um,
0: i got to stop you here because we are up against the clock, but Cassandra, this is fascinating, and I want to talk with you again, so I hope we get you back on the show soon.
3: Thanks again.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: welcome back to moving forward with young voices this is our fourth and final segment today happy to welcome nicholas thielman who uh, joins us now as a young voices contributor and uh, nicholas i understand uh, you are working with the cato institute actually take a moment here and just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do
5: I work for, like you just mentioned, the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives over at the Cato Institute. Um, I'm currently a graduate student at George Mason pursuing my master's in political science. And uh, I'm originally from the Cleveland area. So that's a little bit about me.
0: Okay. We've got a very timely topic. And, and yet, I, I wonder if this is going to be kind of an uncomfortable topic for some people in that when we talk about banks and we talk about people's money, uh, nobody wants to, to consider the prospect that uh, there might be some financial instability out there or, or that uh, there could be more financial instability than we've seen. But, uh, for instance, when Silicon Valley Bank failed, you know, just I, how long ago was that? It seems like a while back, but it, it was within recent memory.
5: Yeah, that was back in March when it failed. And uh, primarily what seemed to have been the cause of it was that it didn't hedge properly against interest rate risk. So a lot of its uh, assets suddenly became or lost a lot of value when the Fed started raising rates back in March.
0: And, of course, this raised concerns on the part of people who had deposits. and, uh, And as I understand, government officials stepped up and said, well, not to worry. We're going to actually, I guess, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, released a set of recommendations that, to, that they would be willing to do unlimited deposit guarantees. And I, I think that would probably bring some peace of mind to some depositors. But um, you, you study economics, and uh, I understand there's really no such thing as a free lunch. Why would that be a bad idea, you know, to, to offer those kinds of guarantees?
5: Yeah. So it's very counterintuitive. What uh, unlimited deposit insurance uh, guarantee from the FDIC would end up doing is essentially wiping away the last bit of market discipline that banks have to deal with in this sort of uh, in governing their risk risk. Taking behavior um, essentially by guaranteeing deposits above two hundred fifty thousand dollars, you would essentially remove the sort of last remaining incentives that these uninsured depositors have to actually monitor the risk taking on the part of bank insiders or bank management, and to essentially place uh, remove that last kind of barrier against the sort of risk taking, sort of reckless lending or poor risk management that ended up leading to the, the collapse of SVB and then the value, uh, Signature Bank as well.
0: So it, it would create a safety net of cor- of sorts, rather, that might actually encourage more reckless behavior?
5: Yeah. So the problem is when it came comes to deposit insurance guarantees is that it creates this issue of moral hazard, where essentially where – depositors and shareholders, because they're not facing the full value of their risk-taking behavior, do not fully account for the risky uh, the risk-taking on the part of bank managers because they're not experiencing the full cost of it. So they will tend to not demand as high equity capital le- levels to sort of provide a cushion against losses. They will not demand higher deposit rates on the deposits they supply to the banks. And this inevitably kind of leads to... Banks essentially taking on too much risk, um, engaging in far more riskier lending practices than they otherwise would, which creates a lot of or builds up, increases the amount of risk actually building up in the bank system, which leads to these sort of periodic panics that we see, such as with SVB and Signature Bank.
0: As you point out in your article, it's it's not like the FDIC is, you know, some new creation and, well, we just rolled this out and, you know, this is to, to promote stability. We actually have a pretty long history. I mean, we're talking 90 years that we can look back and observe, you know, how has it uh, how has it performed? What, what has it done to mitigate these risks? What can we learn from nearly a century of uh, that Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation being in existence?
5: Oh, absolutely. Like the FDIC has been around since 1933 when it was created during the Great depression um, in that time we have seen studies that have come out that have shown that deposit insurance guarantees like the one that they would be proposing to increase for the uninsured depositors have led to risky behavior and have contributed to everything from the SNL crisis in the 1980s to the uh, great financial crisis that occurred a few years ago for the SNL crisis it seemed to have been that by raising the deposit, a guarantee from $40,000 to about $100,000. It stalled, a lot of SNLs, a lot of thrifts that were otherwise insolvent from having to essentially properly take account of their risk-taking. And then on top of that, we have more evidence of these sort of things, uh, this sort of guarantee uh, contributing to the great financial crisis in 2008. And then even before the creation of the FDIC, we have examples at the state level of sort of historic deposit guarantees that led to again the same sort of overextension by banks overexpansion and risk taking which led to these sort of periodic collapses of local bank systems within states like iowa or excuse me oklahoma texas uh new york um but what we end up seeing is that there were a handful of these banking systems that essentially operated through a system more mutual accounts mutual monitoring and insurance by essentially making sure that banks, every bank in the system was going to be liable for the costs that were essentially imposed upon the system as a whole, all of the banks, by the particular risk-taking behavior of certain banks that incentivized the sort of mutual monitoring and constraint that prevented um, some degree of risk-taking and allowed for a greater degree of stability. This uh, mostly being illustrated in places like Ohio and Iowa and New York.
0: What, what is the alternative then? Um, I know that, you know, some people will hit the panic button. Well, what are we saying then? We just let these banks fail. Um, can a case be made that sometimes that is the proper course of action?
5: Yeah. I mean, if a bank has taken on too much risk, if it is liabilities outweigh its assets. This is inherently an unsound institution. And there have not been um, these sort of systemic wide panics that a lot of people use the argument, primary argument for it, for government deposit insurance um, really when you look at the history of banking panics it's mostly been movements from unsound institutions to sound institutions um, this includes things like the great depression which was initially kind of the impetus behind creating the fdic um you know in terms of kind of alternatives there is a case to be made however uh small that at least for small deposit holders, for small savers, for unsophisticated savers, there is a rationale for providing them some sort of minimum guarantee. But for those who are above a certain income threshold, I'm not sure what that should be, but these people have the sophistication or they have the means to essentially purchase the sophistication needed to properly manage their savings, properly manage their assets. And broadly speaking, I would say the alternative would be Kind of a stepping down of the level of deposit insurance that returns the incentives to savers, to deposit holders, to properly manage their assets, to properly monitor bank management. And this would, as we've seen historically, uh, increase the level of stability in the financial system.
0: The concerns over bank runs, I think, you know, that's that's a pretty scary thing, and I think that can can snowball. Are oh, that- there alternatives to uh, to deeper regulation? Are there reforms that could be undertaken um, short of you know offering unlimited uh, loan or unlimited deposit guarantees uh, that, that could also address or mitigate that particular risk?
5: Um, I would say, you know, at a minimum, not doing any more damage would probably be the best sort of near-term solution so not raising the level of deposit guarantees Um, it's sort of like a longer term solution i would say you could probably take a scaling down of the overall level of guarantees gradually over time that allow banks to essentially adapt their portfolios to the loss of this guarantee so that you kind of get this reallocation of capital towards a more sounder institutions and then you get essentially these uh, insolvent institutions. Those would eventually go by the wayside. But broadly speaking, I would say the best approach would be to gradually move away from a state-based or government-supplied deposit insurance guarantee. Again, maybe there's a case for that sort of minimum guarantee, but I would generally say moving away or further away from government guarantees would probably be the best way to sort of forestall uh, systemic risk of that nature.
0: Well, it sounds like this makes a pretty powerful case for why market forces should be allowed to operate. And and you know the, exactly. the fact that you know some banks and some businesses will fail, um, that is that should be a consequence of bad decision making or risky decision making, um, but we're very risk averse, of course. We're very failure averse, and it sounds like by adding government into the mix, oh no no no, we'll prop you up. It just uh, it just seems to to make things worse somehow in the process.
5: Yeah, government definitely tends to be more of a source of instability um, or systemic risk, if you will, than it tends to be the solution to that instability or systemic risk.
0: All right. Again, we're talking with Nicholas Thielman. He is a contributor at Young Voices as well as a graduate student at George Mason University. Um, Nicholas, for those who want to follow you on social media or otherwise follow your writing, where can they find you?
5: I am on... Like I said, I have a page over at uh, CMFA's website where you can see some of the posts I've had there. I can be followed at na feelman at uh, on Twitter, and then I am also on LinkedIn.
0: Just search me. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.